0: Hello and welcome to the ninth episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. My name's Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in our general commercial litigation team. Anna Pertoli, who regular listeners will know ordinarily hosts these podcasts, is on sabbatical for a few months, so I'm hosting today. I'm joined by Jan O'Neill, who's a professional sport lawyer in the litigation team and also Kerry Morgan from our banking litigation team. Some of you may be familiar with Kerry from her regular banking litigation podcasts. So in this edition, I'm going to give a brief update on developments relating to Brexit and discuss some recent cases on factual and expert evidence. Then Jan will look at a recent Civil Justice Council report on compulsory ADR. And Kerry will finish off with an important Supreme Court decision on the scope of a defendant's duty of care in a professional negligence case. So starting with Brexit, the European Commission recently notified the depository for the Lugano Convention that the EU is not in a position to give its consent to the UK's application to accede to the Lugano Convention. Uh, Now, I understand that's not necessarily the EU's final formal response as a decision of whether or not to consent to the UK's accession is ultimately a decision for the European Council, not for the Commission. But it may be academic in the end, since unless and until a proposal is put to a vote by the council, and of course the council votes in favour, the UK will not be able to exceed. As we've said previously, while the UK remains outside Lugano, questions of jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments between the UK and the EU depend in part on whether there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause within the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. If not, it's generally a matter for the common law rules in England or the relevant national laws in each of the EU member states. There is, however, another Hague Convention, the 2019 Judgments Convention, that could significantly streamline enforcement of judgments between the UK and the EU. Now it's not a complete replacement for Lugano, as enforcement can be refused on somewhat broader grounds under the 2019 Convention, but it would go quite a long way toward filling that gap. Um, The European Commission last week adopted a proposal for the EU to accede to that convention. So if that's agreed by the European Council and Parliament, and if the UK also accedes, which seems likely, then a much broader range of judgments will be enforceable under that convention. It will take some time to come into force, though, because even after it's ratified, it's about a year before it takes effect. And then it only applies where the proceedings leading to the judgment were commenced after the convention was in force for both the state of origin and the state of enforcement. So it's when proceedings were commenced, not when the judgment was given. So obviously it would be a while before it has any practical impact, but ratification would be a positive step nonetheless. Next I want to cover a recent commercial court decision on witness evidence which is interesting because it discusses the new regime for witness evidence in the business and property courts under practice direction 57ac which applies to trial witness statements signed since the 6th of April. The case is called Mad Atelier International and Mains, and it's a dispute about a joint venture where the claimant served witness statements from some of their employees giving what was arguably opinion evidence as to their projections regarding restaurants that would have been operated under the joint venture, uh, which was relevant to the quantum of damages claimed. Now, the defendant applied to strike out that evidence and part of the claimant's expert report, which relied on that evidence, pointing to provisions in the new PD that a trial witness statement must contain only evidence as to matters of fact And should not include commentary on documents or other evidence in the case the court dismissed the application to strike out saying that the new pd makes it clear that a witness statement can include any evidence that a witness would be allowed to give if giving oral evidence in chief at trial in the court's view this wasn't just commentary on the documents or other evidence it was either itself factual evidence or it fell into one of the categories where opinion evidence is permitted since it was from a witness with knowledge of the facts and by reference to their factual evidence. The judge said that the PD is obviously valuable in addressing costs wasted by having what he called absurdly lengthy statements, merely reciting and commenting on the documents. But he said it wasn't intended to change the law on admissibility of evidence, and it didn't do so. So that's helpful confirmation, if I think not very surprising. And lastly, for me, just a mention of the most recent in a long line of authorities that have considered when a party might be required to disclose privileged draft expert reports or communications with their expert witness. This is a case called Rogerson and Eco Top Heat and Power in the Technology and Construction Court. So it's long been clear that while the court can't override privilege, it can require a party to waive privilege in documents setting out a previous expert's views as the price of obtaining permission to rely on a new expert. This is aimed at discouraging so-called expert shopping, where a party shops around for an expert that will support their case. It's clear that the power extends to experts instructed before proceedings are issued as well as later in the proceedings. But in the present case, it was applied to an expert instructed at a very early stage, soon after a fire occurred, to investigate the cause of the fire. Previous case law had suggested that a waiver of privilege wouldn't normally be required where an expert had been instructed to advise a party privately at its own expense rather than to prepare a report for the purpose of the proceedings. In the present case, the court was satisfied that the expert had in fact been instructed with a view to being appointed as expert for the purposes of the proceedings, not just private pre-litigation advice. And it didn't help the claimant's arguments to the contrary that they hadn't disclosed the expert's retainer. Interestingly, I think, the judge said, even if that was wrong on the facts and the expert wasn't appointed for the purposes of the proceedings, the judge thought it would be appropriate to require a waiver in any event because the situation was sufficiently unusual, including the level of engagement that had taken place between the party's experts at that early stage. So the message really is that if you want to change experts and you need the court's permission to be able to do that, You should assume you may need to disclose any previous reports or draft reports or other documents setting out the previous expert's views, even if they were prepared long before proceedings were issued, and potentially even if they were prepared by an expert who had not at that stage or or not necessarily been retained for the purposes of the proceedings. Though I think being very clear in the retainer letter that it's not for the purposes of the proceedings, if, if that's the case, may be helpful. Now I'll hand over to Jan to look at the ADR report.
1: Thanks. Um, Yes, so I just wanted to mention briefly um, this recent report that's been issued by the Civil Justice Council on the subject of compulsory ADR, uh, alternative dispute resolution in civil courts. The report was actually requested by the Master of the Rolls, Sir Geoffrey Voss, uh, back in January, and he asked the CJC specifically to consider and analyse and report on the legality and the desirability of civil courts having been given a power to compel parties to litigation to engage in mediation or another ADR process. The current position, of course, is that outside a few very niche um, areas in the system, um, courts currently don't have that power to compel parties. And that has been the case really for over 15 years since the leading decision in this area in um, the Court of Appeals 2004 decision in the Halsey and NHS Trust case. And that was the case in which the Court of Appeal held that uh, the courts can and should encourage parties to try and settle their disputes through ADR and that they could impose cost sanctions on parties who unreasonably refused to do so, but that it must stop short of an actual order that the parties engage in such process. And one of the the key reasons for that was the court's view at the time that Um, forcing the parties to go off and um, engage in a procedure would be uh, an unacceptable obstruction to their right to obtain um, a court judgment, um, the right to access justice, uh, and that that would breach um, their right to a fair trial under Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Of course, in the years since, mediation in particular has progressively become more accepted, more mainstream in the court system, um, at least certainly at the um, upper end of higher value cases in the business and properties courts. And it has come to be embraced by judges as a potential way to ease the pressure, or as potentially the the most uh, hopeful way of, of easing the pressure on um, the court system in terms of uh, the capacity, not, you know, or the, the demand for um, the court's services outstripping its capacity to handle cases, um, resulting in backlogs, uh, blowouts of costs, um, etc., that we're all familiar with. Um, but it's also now been acknowledged that the uptake of mediation across the whole system um, just hasn't been sufficient in order to make a real dent in in those pressures on the court, um, and particularly in the um, sort of uh, lower value, higher volume um, type of cases. And and that whole situation really has led to, over the past uh, couple of years, just increasingly uh, loud and prominent voices, including from um, frustrated members of the judiciary, uh, suggesting that it is well overdue time to reconsider that aspect of Halsey and um, consider uh, reform that would make uh, some form of compulsory ADR Acceptable in in the system, um, and so in it, in that context, um, just the the fact of the report being um, requested by the Master of the Rolls as one of his first uh, steps of taking on that role in January um, is really um, very significant, um, and it also meant that it was not surprising um, when. Uh, We saw the uh, report itself um, and with its conclusion, uh, which is to the effect that there is uh, a clear argument that can be made uh, that compelling parties um, would be both lawful and highly desirable in the current system. Uh, It doesn't um, go one step further and set out any concrete proposals for reform, uh, and makes clear that more work would be needed to assess exactly sort of what type of cases and in what circumstances um, compulsory ADR would be appropriate. Um, but what it does and um, what I think is, is, is going to be um, the real catalyst for change is that it sets out in a very cogent um, argued uh, legal um, legal format uh, the counter arguments, to the points, uh, the objections made in Halsey and and that have been made elsewhere, and that really sets up a a foundational analysis um, on which um, reform could could take place um, if the will is there. And given that um, the Master of the Rolls has welcomed the report as um, opening the door to a shift toward the early resolution of cases, um, it seems fairly clear that the will is there, uh, at least on his part, uh, and... So I think that um, we can expect to see at least some movement in this area um, as to what and when. um, We don't know. It's very much a case of waiting and see. Um, And so it's um, a case of watching the space. Um, That's all I wanted to say on that. So I'll I'll hand back to you now. Thanks,
0: Jan. So finally, Kerry will look at the Supreme Court's decision in the Manchester Building Society and Grant Thornton case on the scope of liability in a professional negligence
2: case. Thank you, Maura. So, just to give a bit of context to the recent decision, it's been clear for a pretty long time that a professional who gives negligent advice will not necessarily be liable for all of the financial loss caused by that advice. In other words, it's not enough for a claimant to show that the loss claimed would not have been suffered but for the negligence. There's a further hurdle, which is to show that the loss fell within the scope of the defendant's duty of care. And so this is what the classic decision in South Australia Asset Management Corporation, which we all know as Samco, looked at, the scope of the defendant's duty of care. Samco was decided by the House of Laws back in 1997, and they considered claims by mortgage lenders against valuers following the negligent valuation of property. It established that a valuer would not necessarily be held liable for all losses suffered by the lender if the borrower defaulted and the lender repossessed the property. And that was the case even if the lender could show that it wouldn't have lent the money if the valuation had been accurate. Lord Hoffman said famously that where a defendant's duty was only to provide information to assist with a decision rather than advising on the whole decision-making process, the defendant should be responsible only for the consequences of that information being wrong. So, in a nutshell, the test coming out of Samco was whether a particular loss would have been suffered even if the information given had been correct. If so, then the defendant was not responsible for it. Lord Hoffman illustrated the point in my most favourite legal parable. He gave the example of a doctor consulted by a mountaineer who is about to go on a difficult climb. The doctor negligently tells the mountaineer that his knee is fit for the climb, when in fact it isn't. The mountaineer goes on the climb, which he would not have done if the doctor had told him the true state of his knee, and he suffers an injury which in fact has nothing to do with the knee. Lord Hoffman reasoned that the doctor would not be liable for the injury, as it would have happened even if the doctor had been correct and the knee was sound. It was an information case, not an advice case. The doctor wasn't responsible for the whole decision-making process as to whether to go on on the climb, merely for providing information about the knee. In the same way, in Samco, the valuers were merely providing information, not advice, and so they were not liable for losses resulting from falls in the market, which would have been suffered even if the valuations had, in fact, been correct. So that was quite a lot of background, sorry. Uh, But we need it because since Samco, there have been many cases in which the courts have applied this counterfactual approach to information cases. And the key thing in the recent Manchester Building Society case is that the Supreme Court has now moved away from that test to some extent. So to put the decision in Manchester in a bit more context, I will briefly recap the facts. The claimant building society sued its auditor for negligent advice given in 2006 regarding the accounting treatment of interest rate swaps relating to its mortgage portfolio. The defendant auditor negligently advised that the building society would be able to make use of an accounting treatment to reduce the volatility of the valuation of the swaps on its balance sheet. It later discovered that the advice was incorrect, and so its balance sheet was exposed to volatility as a result of changes in the value of the swaps, in particular in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Once the building society's accounts were corrected, it no longer held sufficient regulatory capital and was required to close out the swaps, incurring loss of over £30 million. So, the Court of Appeal held that this was an information case and applied the counterfactual approach. I often think counterfactual scenarios are difficult to get your head around, um, but here that meant that it was for the claimant building society to prove that it would not have suffered the same loss if the information had been correct, i.e. if it had not exercised the break clause early and continued to hold the swaps. But the building society couldn't do that since it would have suffered the same loss if it had been able to hold the swaps to term. The discovery of the negligent advice merely crystallised those losses early. The Supreme Court overturned the Court of Appeals decision. Importantly, it said the description's information and advice should be dispensed with as terms of art in this area. Instead, the court's focus should be on the purpose of the defendant's duty, judged objectively by reference to the purpose of the advice. So, what does this mean in practice? It means looking to see what risk the duty is supposed to guard against and then seeing whether the loss loss suffered represents the fruition of that risk. The counterfactual test should only be used as a tool to cross-check the result rather than itself giving the answer, which is good news for those of us whose minds boggle when we uh, look at counterfactual scenarios. So coming back to the facts of Manchester, the court found that the purpose of the auditor's advice was to help determine whether the building society could use the relevant accounting treatment to implement its proposed business model in the relevant regulatory context. As a result of the negligent advice, it adopted that business model entered into further swap transactions and was exposed to the risk of loss from having to break the swaps when it realised that the advice was wrong and it was exposed to regulatory capital requirements which the use of accounting treatment was supposed to avoid. That was a risk the auditor's advice was supposed to allow the building society to assess and so the resulting losses were within the scope of the duty owed. However, on the fact that the court held that the damages should be reduced by 50% on the basis of the building society's contributory negligence. This is a significant decision, both in moving away from the rather problematic distinction between advice and information cases, and because it means the court's analysis of the scope of the duty of care has been refocused squarely onto the purpose of the advice being given, rather than relying on the application of a counterfactual analysis, which can be uncertain in its application. Though clearly there may also be some room for debate in many cases as to the purpose of the professional's advice and the potential risks it was intended or not intended to guard against. So as a practical matter, it makes it even more important for professionals to ensure that there is clear agreement as to the purpose of their advice and how it will be used by the client so that, it, so that there is greater certainty as to what does or does not fall within the scope of the duty if something goes wrong.
0: Thank you, Kerry. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thanks also to Jan and to all of you for listening.